just going to read from um, a few portions here today. And uh, let's see what God has. I am going to read a few scriptures this morning. Something I don't usually do. I read quite a bit of them, but. just that God would have us to see to protect us. And, and this is one thing that he brought up with me this morning, uh, personally, is that no matter what our struggles are, when we're in Christ, and we all struggle, I do. We all do. We, we have these struggles. And a lot of those struggles have to do, uh, some have to do, it, it can be our own failures, our own backsliding. It can be a result of no one for any of us. And again, when God speaks these things, there's no condemnation whatsoever. But sometimes when we know to do good and don't do it, then we live in sin and we can struggle in James 4 and verse 17. That's something we all can do. And, and, but, and then I think a lot of it is when God's grace is effective in us through his love, through us receiving it and being yoked up to him finally in specific areas where we don't, we really don't want to live in sin, meaning in this area, knowing to do good, but we don't do it. We just get tired of it. And it's his grace that's, uh, he's waiting to be gracious in Isaiah 30 and verse 18. But once we, once he brings us to that place, and remember, he always has to bring us to the place where he has placed us in victory as more than conquerors in Romans 8, 37. But that brings out John 21, 18. He's going to carry us to a place where we wouldn't go. Now, once we get there, once only by his grace in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it's only by that, it's only by his grace. Then we are, and what we realize is that we're in this angelic conflict. And obviously we have, God has been so faithful to teach us uh, through these years that in the types in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament in Exodus 12, 1 to 13, and then that's the, the Passover lamb and the Red Sea. Then they pass through the Red Sea. In Exodus, the 14th chapter, we see that in 14, 15, and down through to the end of the chapter. That brings out the positional truth of Christ dying for us. And but we see that once they're, they're out of Egypt, and they've been delivered through a sacrifice that didn't have anything to do with themselves. They just operated in obedience towards it. And uh, the death angel passed over them. And then the Red Sea was opened up. And then they were walking onto the Red Sea. They walked right through it, victorious, and which speaks of, that is literally Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, bringing out that reality. And then they're in the wilderness now. They're not yet in the promised land. They're in the wilderness. And this is where all the conflict is. A lot of conflict. Because Satan couldn't keep God from bringing Israel out. He couldn't. And positional truth like us, he can't touch the positional truth, meaning God's viewpoint of us in Christ. He cannot touch that. 
but he'll go after the experience now. Unless the experience, unless we enter into the promised land, experiencing all what Christ has done, we, we have to pass through the Jordan. That's another passage. But in the meantime, before we get into our promised land, our promised land is being with him in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, and Revelations 2 and verse 17, we're to be with him face to face for all eternity. In the meantime, we're in, the, we're in this wilderness. We're in the world in John 17 and verse 16, but we're not of it because in John 17 and verse 14, Jesus was never of this world. He wasn't of anything about this particular earth, even in its worldly system right now. There was nothing about him that ever entered into him. And, uh, and nothing about him being a life of the world that ever enters into that life that would ever cause us to be satisfied. But with all of this, here we are in the struggle. We're not yet. We're on our way. First Peter 2.11, we're strangers and we're pilgrims right now But because we're, we're on our way. We don't, we don't have a city here, <laughs> meaning there's no place. There's a resting place. Christ is our rest. He's within. And we're on our way to meet him. He's with us. He goes with us. He went before us. He's with us. And he's waiting for us. And we see the beautiful truth of all that brought out even in Revelations chapters 4 and 5. We see that beautiful reality brought out. And we can see that. So we're not yet there in this promised land. So we are in, involved in a struggle. Okay, there's a struggle. And, and this is Ephesians 6, 10 to 19. This, we wrestle not against uh, blood and flesh. We don't. So we all we have, we have these struggles. We all do. We're struggling, and and sometimes we we think that it struggles with people, when it's not. And Ephesians six twelve says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against against blood and flesh, against principalities. It's against this whole satanic demonic army. We're passing through. He's leading us. This brings out the beauty of Psalm twenty three. In those six verses there. Very, very beautiful. And so we, uh, we don't wrestle against that. Against people. It's not against people. Not. So we have these struggles. And the beautiful thing that God was bringing out to me personally. That is that even in the midst of my struggles. Whether I make them people and they're not. Whether the enemy comes against me, Jesus made one thing crystal clear and he said it to all of us when he said it to Peter in Matthew 16 and verse 18. He said, I will build my church. The reason he will, he will because he's the foundation that finished it. He said, I will build my church. We have to understand it is his church. It is his responsibility. It's not mine to fight the battle. We couldn't. How can we fight an angelic army that is invisible, that's innumerable, and yet is real, and we can't see it? We have to have absolute dependence upon Christ who did that, who won the battle. We see this again in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. We see it in Hebrews 9, 12 to 14. And we see it in, in, in 1 John 3 and verse 8 and countless other scriptures where we are already positionally made more than conquerors. In Romans 8 and verse 37. We see these things are crystal clear. 
But the whole time that we struggle, we have these struggles. And God forbid, and he does, but we do. We don't have to in First John 2, 1 and 2. We don't have to sin, but we do have an advocate when we do. And I, I really believe First John 2, 1 has to do with James 4 and verse 17. We don't have to. Sin is a choice, just like obedience and receiving his love is a choice. You see, love is in the will. That's where it is. And it's something that, it's someone that we receive. It's who we receive. And God in First John 4, 7 to 20 is love. And so, the whole time we struggle, and even when we fail and we hate it and go back to it, and we hate the same thing, and the dog keeps returning to the vomit, and the sow to washing in the mud in Proverbs 26, 11. Still, he never sees us that way. God never changes his mind, never changes his view about us being in Christ, even though we struggle. Just I want, I want us to think about that. And I'm, the reason I'm saying that is I, I want to share what God was telling me about myself and others. That no matter where they are, no matter what they're going through, that God sees them in Christ. They're his. They're his. And uh, men that get trapped. You know, I know. I thought of one particular individual recently, very recently, and when God was able to get me aside and counsel me and speak to me and speak to my heart, speak to me uh, in, in, in a nearness, that I was just like that. That I followed certain men. And uh, not that the, God didn't use them, men in, in a specific way and in, in ways, yes, even ways that those men might have even been ignorant themselves. But God was faithful. Because <clears throat> even if we abide not faithful in Second Timothy 2 and verse 13, he does abide faithful. <laughs> he will never deny his love for us in Christ. Isn't that awesome? So the whole time we struggle, people, and we, we, when we get in the way, we will take people's struggles upon ourselves and make us think that we have to do something about it. And it's not even about that. It, it, their struggle is, is, is this atmospheric interference. That's just the way that, that it is. Because we're in this world system right now, but we're not of it. And he's constantly sanctifying us, convicting us. Luke 22, 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, Satan has desired that he may sift you, put you in his sieve and violently shake you, but I've prayed for you. And what does he pray? That your faith fails not. What's that mean? That God always sees me in Christ through all my struggles and through all everyone else's struggles. He just sees them, uh, sees us and sees all of those that are his. He still sees them in Christ and he's leading them. He's leading them. Because after all, did he not lead us into Christ in terms of our salvation? And will he not, now that we're not, now that we are positioned in him, will he not lead us out of anything that's not of Christ? This has to do with our struggles and, and uh, so forth that we all experience. Now, he uses the Apostle Paul in a great way. He, he really did because he was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. And you'll see the recorded word where not Paul was recording it about himself, but God was using him. <clears throat> 
to record about himself. And we see that in Philippians 3, 1 through 8. Well, he was the Pharisee of the Pharisees, meaning he was the height of the proudest, most religious man, period. That's what, the, that's what God has said. Because we know that Paul didn't say in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he had to bring Paul to that place like he has to bring us all, that none of us were qualified to be any kind of an ambassador for Christ. None of us were. None of us were. Because in measure, in the flesh, we can persecute the church. But, he says, and this is the separation, sanctifying process in 15, in 15, 10 of 1 Corinthians, but I am what I am by the grace of God. And he said, I labored more abundantly than they all. But one thing I knew, it wasn't me. It was the grace of God in me. And those were, God had to reduce them down to see what his proper qualifications were. And of course, it was the pure grace and unconditional love of God through his tender, compassionate mercies. Well, God was waiting to be gracious to him, like he has to wait for some of us for so long, like he's waited for me for so long in areas. He's waiting. And love is patient in 1 Corinthians 13. And verse 4, it endures, it bears up. With those two Greek words, hupomone, macrosumia, circumstances and situations, and then negative people. People that function ignorantly in areas of pride that are still his. And how patient he is. And uh, so he had to take Paul. And this is, brings out the types in Numbers 19, 1 and 2. And Hebrews 13, 13 to 15. Everything that Jesus did, he did outside the camp. The camp there is organized, structured religion. That man thinks that he has been called by God to do a work for him. And in reality, it's the son that had already finished the whole work. But then some get deceived by the enemy. And in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 3, if our gospel be hid as it did to them that are lost, those can be those that Satan is deceived to think, even those that, that are Christ, and deceive them to think that they are now some kind of a substitute other than Christ. When, when any of us are just vessels, that's all we are. And, uh, but anyway, he had to take Paul out of the system. Some believe that in, by the time he met Christ on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, 1 to 6, and actually received Christ. And we see that based upon 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3, no man can call him Lord except by, by God. So we know that he was born again. He's approximately 35 years of age. And if you read Acts, the 8th chapter and the ninth chapter, his whole life is just persecuting the church ignorantly in pride the whole time. And God had to take him out of the system, out of the camp, out of man functioning in the place of Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from God, apart from, from God himself, had taken take, had take Paul out of it. Because Paul never said that he was that, 1 Corinthians 15, 9. God had him write that about himself outside of Christ his whole life prior to meeting Christ and his and salvation. And then he wrote in Ephesians 3, 8, finally, in his growth, and we see his growth, the Apostle Paul. Holy Spirit's bringing out. In Philippians 3, 8, he said, I am less than the least of all the saints. Then finally, he knows he's on his way home 
to his face-to-face -face eternal meeting with Christ. In 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15, and he said, I'm the chief of sinners. And in, in, every, in some respect, really, in all of respect, God has to lead each of us that way to see that that's all we are outside of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit had Paul wrote, write those things about him prior in the flesh. That we're not of anymore, and thank God, Romans 8, 9. So God had to take him. He took the Pharisee of the Pharisees, the height of the most religious guy, guy on, the, on the planet that could ever be. That's what the Holy Spirit wrote. There's no one that could outsin this religious, pride, prideful man. No one. Holy Spirit said that. That gives every single human being hope. <laughs> he could take the worst. And religious pride is the height of pride. It is the height of all manifestation of pride and arrogance. It is. So God had to show us, and he shows us that this morning. He had to take Paul out. This is what he took Paul out of. You can read the whole of Matthew, the 23rd chapter. But listen, this is what the 23rd chapter goes into in verse 1. I'm just going to read a few verses there. <clears throat> in verse 1, it says, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and his disciples. Notice, they were his. A disciple is someone that's his. Christ is the teacher, the only one, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they are his pupils. Notice that. Notice that. So no matter what another believer is, what they struggle with, or whether they're still trapped in the system through the pride of ignorance and the ignorance of pride, they're still his. It's his work. It's not mine. He spoke to his to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. What is that? Total legalism. Total legalism of the flesh. They put themselves there in the chair of Moses. Well, they forget what the law was even for. Number one, it was for the Jews only. That's number one. No one can live up to it. The Jews said in Exodus 19, verse 8, and Exodus 24, and verse 3, tell us what to do and we'll do it. Well, why did God give the law? Well, he gave the law because of Romans 7, 12, and 13. Is, was the, the law that's holy, just, and good meant to, meant to be bad or evil? No. It was to bring out what was in man, what he was deceived about. And there are a multitude of Christians and men of God who lead others that are completely deceived. They don't have the full counsel of God in Acts 20 and verse 27. Because the enemy keeps them alive and can do that with any of us in the flesh. Keeps them alive that their own life is dear in Acts 20 and verse 24. Their own life is dear unto them. And not the life that Christ is who is the true servant. They sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not according to the deeds. Listen, for they say and do not do. They will tell you, I in the flesh, or uninstructed, or rejecting Christ, I will tell you what to do. 
when I can't even do it myself. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with even a little finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries. <laughs> well, what are phylacteries? I'll tell you what they were. They were small cases containing scripture texts worn on their eyes so everyone could see them. And they had them on their left arm. They wanted everyone to see that. They're lifting up themselves and deceiving others. This is what happens. And then they lengthen the tassels of their garments. They want everyone to see it. What they did, what they earned, what they earned. Today we call them doctors. Only three places in scriptures where ever a man is called a doctor in all the word of God. Three places. Luke 2.17. I believe it's that. I know it's Acts 10 and verse 34. And I believe it's also in Luke. I just want to read those so that we have a, a clear understanding of them. I believe it's Luke 2.46. Yes. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, in Luke 2.46, sitting in the midst of the, of the teachers, the doctors of the law, listening to them and asking them questions. They were called doctors. You see that. And it's also in... Luke, the fourth chapter, and Acts 10 and verse 34. That's the place. There's only three places in the Word of God. They were all, they were all Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, and Essenes. Today, that's what they are. They have phylacteries and they lengthen the, the tassels of their garment. Listen to what they do. This is the flesh in any of us, too, by the way. It's not just those that go by titles. They love the place of honor at banquets. When they get together and so-called have this fellowship. The place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. Notice that? They want to be recognized. Instead of Christ being high and lifted up in Isaiah 6.1, they feel that that's been given to them by God for them to be high and lifted up. They want the chief seats. Notice in the synagogues where the law was taught, legalism. And respectful greetings in the marketplaces, in public. And being called rabbi, teacher. Today it's called pastor. I love that title, doctor, pastor. And being called rabbi by men. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus said this. But do not be called rabbi. Don't be called that. Don't make pastors be a title of honor to lift you up. For one is your teacher. Notice that? 
One is your teacher. What is that in the scriptures? One is your teacher. Well, here we'll read it. One is your teacher. That's the context here. Now we're going to turn to Ecclesiastes, the 12th chapter, verse 9 through 13. Here it is. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Notice that? Now, knowledge has to do with what? When I know God, when I experience him, who is God? God is love. God is love to teach them that. And he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs, many teachings. Hours on hours of labor. I've said this before, I'll say it again. You know, by, and I say it by the grace of God. I did hard labor carpentry from the age of 14 to 62. And even beyond that, some. And it was physical hard labor. Physical hard labor with health issues. But it pales in comparison to the concentration and discipline to study, to put, arrange many proverbs. Because it not only takes that discipline in the midst of sometimes a lot of physical ailments, but also against an atmosphere that is completely hateful of this truth, reaching those that are Christ. So he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find wonderful words, beautiful words, delightful words, and to write words of truth and to do it correctly, apart from the flesh. The words of the wise are like goads. <laughs> you see the ox goads that Paul was kicking against in Acts 9, 1 through 6? He was 35 years old. No wonder the Jews, and I believe this to be true, you're not, you don't reach manhood, even in a spiritual sense, until at least the age between, and there's discrepancy about it, between the ages of 35 and 40. I believe it's 40, at least. The words of the wise men are like goats. And masters of these collections, masters, that's another one people want, Masters of divinity. I've never seen a human being ever master God. No one ever will for all eternity. Yet some will take that title. You know, you can get that title. The Catholic Church can give you that. Many other teachings that fall far short of who Christ is, you can get that. You can earn that title. You can earn it. Masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by what? One shepherd. Who's the one shepherd? Well, that's Jesus in John 10, 11, and 14. He's the good shepherd. In Hebrews 13, 20, he's the great shepherd. And in 1 Peter 5, verse 4, he's the chief and one. He is the shepherd. From one shepherd. And here's the... Here's what happens to individuals who enter into these systems in Matthew, the 23rd chapter, where men now, men apart from the fullness of Christ, become their teachers. But beyond this, my son, be warned. And this is a warning. The writing of many books is endless. 
I know young men, you can even get worn out when you're young. They get many sources that may even be right, but I tell you, they will wear you out. You will get worn out by them. I guarantee it. You will get worn out by them. Because in them, unless you learn how to glean, and this takes many, many years, unless you learn how to do that, you get caught up in things that they, they may give you one truth, but there could be a few others that aren't. And you swallow the whole thing, then you've got to deal with it. The writing of many books is endless. An excessive devotion to these books is wearying to the body. Well, what's the conclusion? When all has been heard and received and submitted to, reverence God and allow him and his love for you to keep his commandment, all his teachings, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment and everything which is hidden, whether it be evil, good or evil. There is one, one shepherd. So now we go back to Matthew, the 23rd chapter. Matthew, the 23rd chapter. And this is why Jesus said this. Matthew 23 and verse 8. But do not be called teacher. For one is your teacher. And you are all brothers. Do you see what that is? See what that, we're all equal. Doesn't matter. We're all one in Christ. John 17 and 11, 21 and 22 and Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. We're all one. We're all one. Now, do we all hold the same place? No. Do we all have the depth of, of grace and maturity in terms of the pure grace of God in truth? No. No. There's, there are babes in 1 John 2, 12 to 14. There are babes. And then there are young, young men, men that are young on their way to manhood. And then there are spiritual fathers. Spiritual fathers. We're going to see the difference here. Do not be called teacher, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Listen, do not call anyone on earth your father. Yeah, but doesn't it say that, didn't, didn't Paul say, I'm your spiritual father in First Corinthians uh, 4 and verse 15? Yeah. Heavenly. <laughs> heavenly truth. Because it, heavenly truth. Heavenly truth, which is Christ giving you one father. You have spiritual fathers, and they look out for you far more than you would ever even imagine. And even more than they would imagine, because it's all Christ. Do not call anyone on earth your father. Men on earth that want to replace Christ. They want, they want to be your father. And father you and the father of all lies apart from Christ in John 8 and verse 44. And we all can be vulnerable to that. Do not call, do not call men on earth. Earth. Legalism for now. Your father. For one is your father. He who is in what? Heaven. Your heavenly father. You know what a true shepherd is. He's an under-shepherd. He leads you as a spiritual father, as he's being led to the Father, through Christ. So, 
Verse 10, do not be called what? What does he say? Don't be called leaders. Right? Don't be called that. Don't call yourself a leader. Let God lead others through you by Christ. For one is your leader. And who is it? It's Christ. But the greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Notice that? He said, do not be called leaders. Again, teachers is the original word again. Don't be called that. Don't desire to be called that. Don't do it. Then you'll see, you'll, I, I want you to see all the way through in the 23rd chapter what, what this is bringing out. Now here's where leaders are, true servants are, and the way that they, God deals with them first. You're not going to deal with anyone in a proper way until God has dealt with you and dealt with me first, properly. And so now we go to 2 Corinthians 10. And you will see too in there in the Pharisees, Sadducees, Sadducees, that when they teach others their own interpretation, and this again, this is 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, their own interpretation of the scriptures. They can make a, another one a child of hell, even worse than themselves, and get them so cemented, so fixed in in the ignorance of pride, but yet so ignorant. And we see this very clearly here in the scriptures. So we have 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. Again, this was written, and Paul was writing this, and he constantly had to defend his call of God against those that constantly rejected him through the ignorance of pride even when he had ministered to them, invested in them. They got caught up in a system and they operate in pride and in ignorance of pride and even ignorance of mocking. So-called laughter, or so-called kidding around. Well, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1 says, Now I, Paul, myself urge you. How? By the meekness and gentleness of Christ. This brings out a yoke. Paul, he said, I need a yoke when I minister Christ to you. Because if I don't have it, I'll minister it to you in the flesh. It's by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am meek. Now he's being a little, he's being sarcastic towards them, by the way. I want to make that clear too, by the way. He expressed sarcasm towards them. He administered to them, given them the truth, been with them in some of the deepest, toughest times of their lives. They operated in ignorance, but sarcasm towards them. And he said this, I am meek when face to face with you, but I'm bold when I'm absent. I ask that when I am present, that I need not be bold with confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some, listen, some, 
who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. Oh, did you see the way he acted toward that person? Looked like, boy, he was acting in the flesh towards them. Because, you know, as far as we could go in our growth, that's as far as we could see them. I could see this whole situation and circumstance. Well, for though we do walk in the flesh in these physical bodies, we do not war according to the physical bodies, especially in the flesh in our bodies. For the weapons of our warfare, is there warfare going on? Where do you suppose all the intensity, they had a few skirmishes in the wilderness, but once they entered into the promised land, that's where their warfare started. Once people, once someone had a desire to teach others deeply the things of Christ, desired them, to love them, to fellowship with them, to have Christ with them, when the enemy came in like a flood in Isaiah 59, 19. Of course, we know in Isaiah 54, verse 17, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper against you, and every tongue that rises against you will, will be condemned. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Not of the flesh, but separated from that divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, people, strongholds, people held in strongholds. And then when the men are held strong, who are supposed to be the initiators, in pride they keep their wives back, who were touched, who deeply desired it. They were raised up in the position it wasn't of Christ. They keep the wife in bondage and also the children. This can happen to any of us, by the way. But they're divinely powerful for the destruction of these fortresses. And there's no we are there. No, it's Christ destroying speculations. I think this is true. And every lofty thing, you see, lofty. <laughs> see, I have this position. Every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, his love not penetrating towards them. It doesn't hit the husband, and it doesn't hit him, and the wife follows him, doesn't hit her, and doesn't hit the children. And they are in bondage. And the enemy, without proper teaching in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 24, keeps them in a place where in the ignorance of their pride, they oppose themselves. Because I think in measure they know, but they still resist because they're going to have to give up this position that they have. They might have to be humble, like the rest of us, and we all do. We all need to be humble. 1 Peter 5. 6 through 10, and James 4, 6 through 10. They all need to be humble, but they just might have to be humble and be taught something instead of appearing like they are something. When without God's love, 
in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, and 13. We're nothing, and it doesn't profit us or anyone else that submits to it. So they're stuck. These lofty things that are raised up by the enemy against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And, what, and we are ready to punish all disobedience, to deal with it, when our, when our obedience is complete, when we're completed. And do we think for one second that the enemy wants us with people? Well, of course there's patience involved in this too, tremendously. There's no experience of love without that patience, without God's patience. And boy, is he ever patient. Ephesians 6.10, finally, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You need to put on the full armor of God so that you will have this supernatural ability to stand firm against all the wiles and schemes, the lies and lust patterns of the devil. For our struggle is not against blood and flesh. And some may think that. Some may think that that's what they saw. But miss the depth and desire for others to be set free and to be loved and fellowship. Not to replace Christ ever, but to have fellowship and to gather around him in freedom and in love for each other and seeing families and multitudes set free. And, and Yes, be angry in Ephesians 4, 26. Angry at sin and at the devil. And all you that love God, all you that love, you, have, you hate evil, John 97, verse 10. And you have to teach these things because it's a battle. You'll see this in Jude 3. Read Jude 3 right to the end of the chapter. Read. There's only one chapter in Jude. Read it. See where, where it comes and the, what the battle is. For our struggle, and we all see this, our struggle is not against blood and flesh, but against the rulers, Satan's army, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, keeping people in darkness, against the spiritual forces, the spirituals of wickedness in the heavenlies. So you need to take up the full armor of God. And when people don't have that full armor, the full truth of who Christ is, the full counsel of God in Acts 20, 27, because other men come in from the outside and even men from the inside in Acts 20, 29 and 30, to take people away from them. You see this in Galatians 6, 12 to 14. They want men unto themselves in their own lust of their pride. This could be a Christian. This can be a so-called leader or a pastor. So-called. Remember, you don't call people that. What is Poimon? Shepherd. How many shepherds are there? There's one shepherd. We saw that in Ecclesiastes 12, 11. But our struggle is not against blood and flesh, but against all these. We need to, people need to take up the full armor of God so that they will have that supernatural ability to resist in the evil day. Is an evil day that we live in? It's never been more evil outwardly than it ever has right now. 
and having done everything, to stand firm. So stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This isn't preaching peace. This is each individual having the peace that Christ is in Ephesians 2 and verse 14. That's the context. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith. All those teachings about the person of Christ and what he has already accomplished. We're not accomplishing things for God. God has never given a man, raised up a man to accomplish something for him that his son did not already accomplish. It's just ignorance of pride. This will be brought out in a much deeper way tomorrow. In a much, much deeper way. But this would be preparatory for all of us for what God will bring to us, I believe, tomorrow. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil, the evil one, the evil Satan, and take the helmet of salvation, deliverance, constant deliverance, and now the sword of the Spirit. That's Hebrews 4.12, based upon 1 John 2.20 and 2.27, and John 16.13 and 14. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, with all prayer, and boy, this is what it takes. And petition. Pray at all times. Depend upon them all times in the spirit, and with this in view, and be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And this is what Paul prays, and this is what I pray for me. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery, the unknown truths about Christ, the gospel. May they be spelled out properly and exegeted properly. For which I am an ambassador in chains. And that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to. As I ought to. And Father, we are so thankful for your grace, your mercy, your unconditional love. And that even though I, and we struggle, in this conflict, and we fail and we make mistakes and we sin. And just a mistake is what a mistake is. Many call them mistakes. It's just the ignorance of sin through pride. You never see us after that. And I just want others to see that. You have a deep desire. I could not desire that for myself. None of us could and not include others that are already Christ, that the enemy has held captive. Second Timothy 2, and verse 26, their will has been captured, and he will use men. In Second Corinthians 11, 14, Satan is an angel of light, and he'll make ministers. And 15, and get them trapped in a system to keep Christ out experientially. And Father, we thank you and praise you you're so patient and I know you've been so patient with me and you need to work that patience in 
and it needs to be worked out, the patience of your love towards others. And we thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for this truth in Jesus' name. Amen.